This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, Tom and Elise from our cyber team talk about misinformation in the reporting of some recent high-profile incidents. But first, Aspie's Executive Director Peter Jennings talks to the Honourable Kim Beasley, Governor for Western Australia, and Emeritus Professor Paul Dibb of the ANU about Professor Dibb's latest special report for Aspie how the geopolitical partnership between China and Russia threatens the West. Well, welcome all to Policy, Guns and Money, ASPE's podcast, and I'm delighted to be able to be talking here today with Kim Beasley, now uh, Governor of Western Australia, but uh, I think known to many ASPE people really as Emeritus Fellow. Uh, Kim, that's how we think of you from uh, your past. And Paul Deb, Professor at the Australian National University, again, a long-term friend of ASPE. Welcome to you both. We're pleased to be launching today uh, Paul's latest publication with us, a special report, How the Geopolitical Partnership Between China and Russia Threatens the West. Paul, to me, the crux of your article is the idea that Russia and China are moving beyond the marriage of convenience to what is emerging to be a deeper and more sustained partnership between Moscow and Beijing, and that this is aimed at threatening the democracies to make the world safe for their brand of authoritarianism. Mm. Take me through some of the events which point to that fundamental change. First of all, the announcements that both Putin and Xi Jinping have made about the relationship. Xi Jinping um, describes it as the closest relationship ever. Putin doesn't use the word alliance, but some of his cronies and so-called academics in the uh, Kremlin, uh, like Sergei Karaganov, who I know, describes it as a quasi-alliance. And they're united not in ideology, as they were perhaps in communist times on occasions. They're united in their grievances and disdain for the West. Uh, Kim, what's your take on this? I seem to come at Paul's publication from a slightly different angle. My starting point is what does it mean for Australia? I mean, I, there are uh, positions that Paul takes in this, and it has to be said he does qualify his positions quite regularly. He's not actually uh, prophesying general war. He is, uh, he, but he, he, he's, he's laying out risk. This is a, a useful reflection of the fact that we have lost our discipline over the years in strategic thinking uh, that we had back in the 80s when the concept of warning time was developed. And if you applied warning time now, you'd say we were into uh, warning for short-term high-level conflict. And that has immense ramifications for alliance relationships. It has immense ramification for our defence expenditures and what we spend it on and all the rest of it. So I don't think this is a document which would appear as the assessment at the beginning of a new white paper publicly distributed. It is a document that would be in the secret white paper. Yes, yes. Well, a, a key uh, in all of this is the position of, of the US and the direction of American strategy. Uh, Kim, isn't uh, President Trump the great friend of the autocrats? Um, How does America respond, or indeed will America respond, to this new relationship between Russia and China? I don't think in the United States that I've seen any publication as comprehensive in its its description 
emerging relationship between uh, Russia and China. So dropped in the middle of American academic debate, it's not as though the concepts in it are entirely absent mm. from it. They're all there, but they're not drawn together in this sort of way. So your starting point would be to have a conversation with them to say that this thing is important. I think Trump has had advisers who would not be unadjacent to this, like Secretary of Defence Mattis in the days that he was there. He would probably note this, pick it up and cogitate it. I'm not exactly certain about the current Defence Secretary. Maybe he would uh, cogitate these matters along these lines. Certainly, the statement of American defence policy put out by, by Mattis encompasses the diplomacy and the force structure that you would develop to deal with it. But I don't know if Mr Trump either has absorbed it or believes it. Probably not. That's the key question. Paul, you draw on the Mattis um, mm. strategy quite a lot. Mm. D does that have its place in, in the Oval Office, do you think? Or? Look, uh, Kim's more expert on that these days than me, but the Mattis document was very encouraging, describing both Russia and China, in that order, by the way, as authoritarian revisionist powers. And of course, that's what joins them together, that the fact they are authoritarian, revisionist, and anti the West. The issue is, as Brzezinski says in his book, The Great Chessboard, when he says the biggest challenge for the United States, and he wrote this in 2016, the biggest challenge for the United States would be a grand coalition between China and Russia. Well, we're there now with that, and his solution is for America to peel Russia away from China. Mm. That ain't gonna happen given the tension in the relationship. And by the way, Putin now is so violently, deeply anti-Western that it would take a lot to unpeel him. Even Macron can't get to do that. And why is he so anti-Western? Well, there are many reasons, but the, the deepest one from a Russian point of view has been the expansion of NATO to the very strategic space of the Soviet Union. Saying that, I'm not excusing the Russian response. I'm describing what I know to be the Russian view. Right. So, so in your um, uh, paper, you, you talk about how the Russians and the Chinese might sort of stress West, the ability of the West to respond by coordinating attempts to perhaps annex territory. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you sort of look at the balance of probabilities of Estonia, which is a NATO ally, versus Ukraine, which is not, or at least not yet, a NATO ally. Just just take us through some of your thinking about how the uh, Moscow and, and Beijing could could really put um, some difficult challenges to the West by coordinating these approaches? That's the difficult question, Peter. And as you can see, I, I do a lateral arabesque in the paper on that. Um, what I describe as unknown knowns, we know yes. that the Chinese have ambitions, obviously with regard to the South China Sea, the Senkaku Diot Islands, and not least Taiwan. And we shouldn't underestimate that. The Russians are already in Georgia, um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, Ukraine and Crimea. The others that I name, and particularly the ones you mentioned, Estonia and Ukraine, that's me sort of trying to challenge conventional strategic thinking and see whether from a point of Soviet point of view and under what conditions they might try that on. The question of coordination, as you see in the paper, I don't firmly say that they're at that stage yet. Mm -hmm. What I do say is, 
It is the highest intelligence issue in both Washington, in my view, and here, to test those judgments and to test the evidence, Peter. Yes. So, uh, Kim, I'll bring you in on that point to talk about Taiwan. Now, uh, we published Paul's uh, paper in, in late November, and that's obviously before the Taiwanese election, which saw the return of uh, a strong, positive return of the more pro-unification party in Taiwan. Paul says in the paper... Taiwan's situation is critical in the Asia-Pacific. If, if China attacked Taiwan in order to bring effect to forcible reunification, Paul says that a failure of the United States to come to the defence of Taiwan would be the end of the alliance system in the region. Do you share that assessment? And what is your view of the strength of the alliance system in the Asia-Pacific? Well, that would be a risk. Uh, there's no question about that. I think the, um, that if you're looking at who's peelable away, probably China is more peelable away than, than, the, than Russia is. That's, uh, at least there's one thing that China has in common with the West, which uh, Putin does not, and that is the Western economy works well with China. They want to tweak it. They want to do different things with it. But it's enormously important to them that they have access to it. So that is something that you can conjure with in discussions with the Chinese. The problem for Xi is that his mandate depends heavily on him being able to resolve the issues of the island chain, uh, in the island chain in which Taiwan is part and the other island issues, or his credibility goes under. When China was being run by a sort of seven-man or whatever subcommittee of the Politburo and five years of duration for it, they could sort of do nothing. They could talk the talk, but they didn't have to walk the walk. The way in which Xi has been anointed really means if he's going to maintain his mandate, he basically has to deliver. That's a big problem. That puts Taiwan on the agenda. I think there'd be a, uh, a debate about what that would mean for us. I think the issue that we would have to contemplate there in circumstances where there was an unprovoked attack on the armed force of the United States, mm. ANZUS would apply. Mm. That's something that we constantly have to make known to the people we deal with, including China, with whom we very sensibly want to have a decent relationship. Well, that uh, time has, uh, has absolutely rocketed by, but I, I don't want to finish without asking the both of you about the strategic impact of this Russia-China relationship for Australia. Um, if you were imagining yourself talking to our current government on this issue, what would be on the top of your lists for thinking about Australian defence policy settings going forward? Paul, I'll go to you first. Well, coming back to Kim's very important point about warning time, even before this China-Russia strategic partnership, my view was the previous judgments we had correctly had uh, in the 87 white paper and subsequently that we would have warning time of a major power developing the conventional capabilities to do a serious harm. That has gone now. China is in the region, in our neighbourhood. 
Its militarization of the South China Sea brings it 1,400 kilometers closer to our vulnerable northern approaches. We know it's sniffing around military bases, you know, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. What about Timor-Leste, by the way? 30 minutes flight time from Darwin. And I think that we are now sleepwalking on this issue, this government is, and I think the department is. We face the capabilities from China embedding itself in the region, and we need to develop much stronger strike, expansion base for the ADF, stockpiles, missiles, and fuel. What will make it worse is Russia coordinating perhaps, perhaps, in our region, so it is not only helping to arm China with some of the most advanced Russian weapons, like the S-400 air defense system, it's going to build a ballistic missile defense radar for the Chinese. That we've had in June, July last year, for the first time ever, two Chinese strategic nuclear bombers, two Russian strategic nuclear bombers, rendezvousing together and deliberately challenging the airspace overlapping of Japan and South Korea. If we see more of that, particularly in Southeast Asia and the South Pacific, that has huge implications for Australia. Uh, Kim, final thoughts from you on Australian defence policy? Uh, we'll start, going start with an accept responsibility for the South Pacific. So the, the th you always like to point to positive things. The one positive thing I point to in that regard is the decision for us to pay for the fibre optic cable between ourselves and the Solomons. Big deal it was. Uh, we could, you could actually beat a Chinese bid with naught. And um, that was what we did. That's an indication. And the fact that we're now looking seriously at um, Marnus. Uh, those are the sorts of things that we need to think through. We need to think too through uh, strengthening the, uh, the capabilities of the countries around us so they at least feel a sense of confidence, mm. even though it may not mean that much in military terms in dealing diplomatically with the issues that arise in the region. Thirdly, we actually do need to have a fighting readiness now. The big advantage we had, and when Paul was responsible for advising me and we were taking decisions, the world looked very different. The Americans, nobody's all that interested in the Southeast Asian region. We had a level of threat that we could deal with largely ourselves, with the Americans critical to it, but not by intervening themselves directly. Uh, we're now in a situation where we're much more dependent on the Americans. We need them for high-quality equipment and we need to be embedded with how they develop it. But we also need to be aware that that actually constrains the way in which we engage in all the uh, potential breakouts of, uh, of uh, tension that's covered off in, in Paul's, um, Paul's paper. And uh, that's something that the government will need to discuss with the Australian people because there's going to have to be a degree of self-strengthening. Also, we need both a conversation with the Americans at one level, we also need one with the Chinese. We need to be able to make an argument to them that in the end, they benefit from a prosperous region, not a war-torn one. I think the Chinese are actually capable more capable than the Russians of a discussion like that. Mm -hmm. And so we are in a position to have that discussion. The Europeans aren't. Uh, we are, and therefore we need it. Well, big strategic issues on which we could talk for hours, and I'm sure we will. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining me on Policy, Guns and Money. Pleasure to be with you. 
Misinformation online is on the rise. Let's hear from Tom and Elise. Elise, so you wanted to talk about Burisma and Jeff Bezos being hacked. And to tell you the truth, I know very little about them. So what's the story? What happened? Uh, well, I think the, the heart of the story is it probably didn't happen. Mm. Um, so what we've had over the last couple of weeks, we've had two really sensational cybersecurity-related stories come out in the headlines. Um, the first one was sort of the claim that, uh, quote-unquote, Russia had, quote-unquote, hacked Burisma. Yep. I'll go into a minute why I'm using so many air quotes around that. Um, and then last week we had the claim that uh, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos's phone had been hacked using a WhatsApp message sent from the Saudi Arabian Prince Mohammed bin Salman's personal WhatsApp account. Yep. And the core thing to know about both of those claims is the actual evidence underlying them is really thin. Mm. Um, so what happened with the Burisma story is that a, a group called Area One, um, which is a cybersecurity company which provides anti-phishing services yep. um, ha and has been providing anti-phishing services um, to, I think, a number of political campaigns. They came out with a report saying essentially that they'd found uh, a phishing campaign aimed at a subsidiary of the Ukrainian gas company Burisma, so not even at Burisma itself. The core points there are, I guess, the headlines that came out in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal all said very clearly Russia hacked Burisma. A, it's not a hack, it's a phishing attempt. B, there's no evidence that it's successful. C, it was aimed at a subsidiary of Burisma, not Burisma. All of the actual facts underlying the story have been washed away by the political momentum of the story. So um, obviously the issues around Burisma and Russia all tie into the impeachment trial, which is going on in the US at the moment. And so that story has taken on a life and a momentum of its own where now it's it was even cited in, I think, the opening statements to Trump's impeachment trial by uh, Adam Schiff. Yep. Um, as if it was fact, when in fact there's no evidence that it actually happened. Yeah, so a couple of things that you mentioned made me sort of prick my ears up. One is that I'd never heard of Area One. Mm. Is it Area One? Yeah. So there are a number of reputable cybersecurity firms who've got a good track record of producing, well, I would call them sensational reports, but that do actually stack up. And it seems like maybe Area One isn't one of those. Yeah, so I've, I've brought the actual report with me. Um, I'll, I, I don't know, uh, podcast listeners probably can't hear how thin it is, but I'll shake it anyway. Um, it's eight pages long. Three of those pages are a title page, a giant screenshot, and the end page. So it's actually about five pages long, um, and they've used some really big font here. So, like, basically it's it's a really, really short report and sort of the um, connections. So, so the claim of Area 1 was that this is a GIU operation. That's the, the Russian military intelligence. And the, the evidence for making that claim, which is a really significant claim to be making if you're going to make an attribution to a state actor, um, the evidence for that is very thin. Um, and has been questioned by a lot of cybersecurity experts after after the report was made public. Yep. And so the other thing that occurred to me is that a phishing campaign is probably actually, for most companies, an everyday occurrence. So yeah. the fact of the presence of a phishing campaign probably signifies nothing at all. Like, uh, I think the stats for Aspie are, are horrendously frightening. Yeah. There's, you know... They are literally thousands of emails that are blocked because they're suspicious. So is that that also tends to make me sceptical. Yeah, so like it, it does look like there was like a tailored uh, phishing campaign specifically for this um, Ukrainian gas company subsidiary mm -hmm. um, in that they registered a bunch of lookalike domains for their email provider's remote login page. Um, so it does look like there was a campaign targeting this subsidiary, but um, it's not 
like I said, the evidence connecting it to the GRU is really, really thin. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's not really clear what you would get necessarily um, in, t- in terms of sort of the, the broader picture of um, US-Russia geopolitical relations. It's not really clear what you would actually get by hacking the emails of a subsidiary of a Ukrainian gas company. It's very unlikely that this subsidiary, the gas company, had, you know, explosive political dirt on Hunter Biden. Mm. Um Whereas, you know, as we know that there are a lot of sort of just generalised attacks on infrastructure companies all the time because they are a valuable target, um, not just not necessarily by the GRU. Uh, but perhaps by the GRU in Ukraine. Potentially, yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not... So there's no evidence that it yep. isn't a GRU attack. Yep. Um, yep. It's just the evidence for making that claim is pretty thin. Yeah. And so Bezos. Bezos. I, re- I heard about Jeff being hacked by uh, Mohammed bin Salman. But yes. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not, yeah. So what happened there is that Bezos appears to have hired this company, FTI Consulting, um, and they took a forensic look at his iPhone. So what they found was that in early May 2018, Bezos's phone began transmitting an unusually large amount of data, and this was shortly after the phone had received a video message via WhatsApp from a WhatsApp account belonging to Mohammed bin Salman. And that's pretty much it. That's pretty much the extent of the allegations. So there's no actual evidence. So the, the researchers didn't find any malware on the phone. Um, they didn't actually find any solid indications that the phone had been hacked at all. So essentially what they found here is there was some unusual behaviour on the device and that's it. That is that is the entirety of the basis for this claim, um, which is not, it's not evidence that something didn't happen. It's possible that there is some malware on the device that they just weren't able to detect. Um, and there are some questions about why they weren't able to decrypt the WhatsApp downloader, which you know, they said in, said in the analysis that they weren't able to decrypt. A lot of cybersecurity experts are asking questions about that because they should be able to decrypt it. The decryption keys are on the device because yeah. it's end-to-end encrypted. Uh, so it is possible that there is malware on the phone, but there's no evidence of it. And obviously, if you're going to make a huge claim like the Prince of Saudi Arabia is personally implicated in hacking the CEO of Amazon, you'd want some actual evidence. Yeah, that claim did strike me as as a bit strange in that if MBS were interested in having Jeff hacked, why would you do it personally? Like, that's why you have people do things for you. Yeah. Um, I don't imagine crown princes do many things for themselves. Mm. Um, and certainly when you're looking to hack a prominent figure, you would have some separation. Yeah, and, I mean, we don't know what else was going on with the device at that time. So, yeah, it's, it's just this piece of unexplained behaviour which is being presented us with no context. So we, we have the context that there was a video message and then there's a change in the volume of data being transmitted, but we don't know what else happened to the phone at that time. It might have been something else changed. We don't know. So, Elise, the, what's the common thread between these two stories? Is there some bigger lesson that we can learn um, I think the bigger lesson we can learn is that we need to be much more sceptical of claims that are made in the cybersecurity space, particularly ones with really significant geopolitical ramifications, because obviously allegations that uh, you know a state-linked actor is involved in a serious hack, um, that is a significant claim and there will be impacts of that claim. For example, the United Nations has called for an investigation in relation to the alleged Bezos hack. And I, I think the other significant point is that the, the story tends to run ahead of the truth sometimes. Um, so, for example, the sort of the political narrative of Russia hacked Burisma or the political narrative of MBS hacked Bezos, that's continuing to roll on regardless of the fact that there are significant questions being raised over whether there's any evidence to support that it actually happened. So what do we need, though? Do 
I know we've certainly been approached in the past by journalists asking us about our opinion. Who's responsible? Is it the journalist? Should they try harder to get veracity? It, it seems to me that many journalists don't really understand the technical details, so they're at a, a bit of a loss. Mm, I, I think they're... I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's responsibility on the journalists. Um, so, for example, uh, some of the claims that have been made, particularly in the headlines, like things like Russia hacked Burisma, that wasn't a claim that was made anywhere in the Area 1 report. They claimed that Russia effectively had tried to fish a subsidiary of Burisma. So that is on, I think, those media publications that have made that jump from a subsidiary of Burisma to Burisma and from fishing to hacking. That's on those media publications. Um, but then I think on the other side, it's also on the cybersecurity companies not to stretch their findings to make sort of the, the splashier claim, even if that results in better headlines for them. Um, they probably need to be a little bit more cautious, particularly if they are making these really significant claims about, you know, very substantial actors. So in the meantime, I should just ignore all the cyber news. Is that the take-home message? No, read the cyber news, but then also read the report that the cyber news is based on. Okay. Thanks, Elise. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. If you'd like to read Professor Dibb's report mentioned earlier, please head to our Aspie website. You can find the link in the description. We're back to our usual fortnightly programming now. You'll hear from us in two weeks.